Hello, we are the Manic Street Speakers, the girl and boy who wanted to be God. Coming up on episode 15 is our interview with Mark Burrows on his brilliant new book, Manic Street Preachers Album by Album, and we take a look at the B-side, Buildings for Dead People. But first, let me introduce you to a lady with the voice of an angel when her mouth isn't full of cake. Or covered in cake. (laughs) It's Emma. Huzzah! I, I'm, I, I do feel very seen, but I did go out for cake today, so I can't say that's a lie. There is no lie I, in that. I can see the future, or the past, or the present. Look, you can see everything. You are omnipotent. I've been called worse. <laughs> Let me introduce you to your podcast host, who may well hold the same views as me when it comes to noisy fireworks and pets. Pets. I ran out of air there. He got his bones out in public for Halloween this year and he once gave me some amazing life advice. The signs will signpost the way, which I think we can all agree is genius. It's Mikey! <laughs> as, as someone who doesn't drive, I cannot, for the life of me, give people directions. So when I try, it's... Yep, 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 yep. Signpost. They'll, yeah. they'll signpost the way. I still remember I was leaving your, you were living in a flat in Exeter and I was leaving and I was like, oh, I don't know how to get back onto the main road home from here. And you were just like, the signposts will signpost the way. It's kind of wise though, isn't it? It's very, it's very, I I truly believe I have used that life advice throughout many years. And did you get home? I got home safe and sound. So quite frankly, your method works. Right, let's have a quick burst of news. Yes, burst me with news. Manix have been confirmed for the Why Not Festival in July 2022. It's based in Derbyshire. Uh, they're not headlining, sadly, because they're below the... St- Stereophonics. St- you can do it, I believe in you. Sneak. St- 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 Stereo, st- stereophonics. They're below the stereophonics. I mean, I didn't even know they were still a band. <laughs> but uh, what can I say? I did once win my Bitch of the Week badge from Melody Maker for slagging off Kelly Jones. Please don't hate me. Um, you know. He had slagged off James. To be fair, that's why I wrote to Melody Maker and I slagged him off. Emma? Yes. It was a long time ago. Get over it. I can't. <laughs> Okay, uh, the NHS gigs in Cardiff from September raised £85,000. That is incredible. So I'm pretty much hopeful that that helps undo the damage that Boris Johnson has tried to bring to hospitals this week. That was... (laughs) That's basically the noise that Boris Johnson makes when he talks. (laughs) That's all I hear. That's all he does. That is all he does. It is literally just... I can't wear a mask, otherwise who would see my mouth flapping? <laughs> I think that's my new name for him. The Mouth Flapper. <laughs> Boris Johnson, The Mouth Flapper. Next up is our B-side. Buildings of Dead People was a B-side to Tsunami and released on the 5th of July 1999. <laughs> <laughs> 
I am pretty certain that this was the first Manix B-side I ever heard. So I have got a very soft spot for it. Even though the beginning, the vocal percussion, the... It just sounds like James is trying to summon something. I'm no, I've never been sure whether I love it or I find it extremely cringy, that beginning. He's trying to sum up the ghost of Kelly Jones. I mean, that makes so much sense. Um, but I do remember that the CD had the A Design for Life video on it, so I used to watch that an awful lot. My favourite thing is that it's a... This is most Truth Tell Me Yours era B-side, but my God, is it Know Your Enemy in style. And of course, that's something you can only look back and see with hindsight, because at the time we would Know Your Enemy was but a twinkle in all of our eyes. I love how rough and raw this is. It's very fuzzy. It's got an amazing chugging rhythm that drives the song. Um, the only thing I would say is the, sl the strange slowed down part towards the end where James sounds slightly drunk. It's like a drunk man in a bar. <laughs> Just random shouting. Um, it feels very weighted down by the lyrics such as history will make us or history will break us and we're treated just the same with fame. Uh, although I do realise and it was only listening to it again to do this that made me realise what it reminds me of because when, when he sings I think it's all hindrances linger or hindrances linger as it does it really reminds me of all pictures blood dried from whatchamacallit nostalgic however you say it yeah. um, and I don't know I always felt like that sort of like clagged the song up a little bit and despite the fact that I do think Get Ready to Say Goodbye is a great last line, I always really wanted the song to speed up and return to that chugging guitar that I really liked, rather than slow down and stop. That said, I find something almost addictively catching, catchy sorry, about this song, and I remember many, many listens when it first came out where I reached the end and immediately skipped it back to the start again. Yeah, I, I'm generally in full agreement with you. I, I love how it kicks off with this really confident glam rock strut that doesn't really fit like you say with the this is my true theory era um the chugging main riff is awesome but i also love the fact that the lead guitar solo clashes with it yes but sometimes it wails away from it as well it goes off on its little tangent and then of course there's the, the short sean's thumping drums that give it that uneasy feel yes what do you think of the subject matter though because on first thoughts the title to me sums up it that it's referring to a morgue but it hints i think in, in lyrics at hospitals i.e we build buildings for dead people we build restrooms for the sick it's a it, it's a really tricky one because i've always found it sort of veers and i've never really been able to pin down what they're trying to say because when they say um you know we we've build buildings for the people in the chorus and paintings for the blind capable of giving love or taking out your eyes and i'm like what what it's i'm sorry i just turned into boris johnson <laughs> what um yeah i mouth cake flapper i'm sorry i am now the mouth cake flapper <laughs> um or cake mouth flapper it's yeah, I've never really been able to wrap my head around what they're trying to say in this song, if I'm brutally honest. I've always just sort of been like, well, it's fuzzy, it's meant to be a bit sort of like... sounding. I don't know what the point is, but 
I like the way they're making it. Well, the lyrics are both deep in places and comical in others, aren't they, really? Like, I love the line, it's absolute nonsense, from the womb t into the tomb. Yeah. Making sure you feel at home, which makes me sum up that image of a hospital being purgatory between life and death. If you put a gun to my head, I would say, for me, if I was going to be really deep about it, and I could be really wrong, I would argue, if I had to, that this song is kind of almost like we're all the dead people Every, you know all the buildings we build are pointless because we're all gonna die <laughs> and everything is i feel like it's very much a song that is is sort of like that line sums it up for me can i can i just interrupt and say hey our next episode is our christmas special everyone <laughs> <laughs> i'm here bringing the cheer just like rudolph the red-nosed reindeer um <laughs> I promise never to rhyme again. <laughs> yeah, no, I just do. I feel like if I had to, if I had to say it, what I think this is about, because I've never, I've never sat and thought this is the point they're trying to make with this song. I genuinely mean that. But if, if, if you put me on the spot, I feel like there's almost like a, what is the point? We're all in the middle and, and then nothing because the bit where they're talking about history will make us and history will break us and we're treated just the same with fame the reason that sticks out to me is like well we've got we've achieved the things we said we were going to achieve and life is still basically just life do you know what i mean no, i understand yeah so yeah i'm really interested to hear what other people would analyze this song as being about now weirdly if we're talking about what interpretations of the song song there is the the line cue for bread is entertainment i know what my imagery has nothing to do with what the song is but i always it always makes me think of a war-torn city in the snow mm. and people are outside a shop literally getting rations of bread that's what it yeah. is in my head yeah. but i think it's probably just referring to hospital food isn't it i would imagine so yeah i i think there is a i think you're probably much more right than me <laughs> But at the end of the song, like you say, you don't like the end of the song. It's not that I don't like it. It's just I really like the sort of fuzzy, guitar-y verses and the chugging rhythm. And then when it sort of goes away, and like I said, James does sound mildly pissed. Um, I don't know. I just, I think, it's not that I don't like that bit. I think I would have liked it to have done the slow bit and then sped up again and then gotten to an end. I feel like it just sort of goes... Ugh. Yeah, for me, I guess... I mean, I'm obviously looking too much into it, but I'm a Manix fan. That's what I'm going to do. Of course. It, it, when the end, it literally slows down. It does sound like a song that's ebbing away itself yeah, as it's slowing yeah. down. It's like almost like James is shouting in vain, trying to keep keep it going, like keep mm -hmm. alive. You know, that almost that feel feel to me. 
No, I completely get that. I do completely get that. I think it is literally with me just um, a music thing where I'm like, I, I love, I've always had a thing and they do it a lot in pop music and I know it's sacrilege probably to talk on a Mannix podcast about my, my adoration for pop music, but they do it in a lot of pop music songs where they'll slow the chorus down, like they'll do a slower version and then they'll go back up to full speed. There's just... I'm used to that stylistic choice where you where you have quite a up-tempo song, it's quite chugging away with this rhythm and then it goes slow and then it comes back. And so the fact that this one is literally like dun, 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 and then yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for it to go dun, 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 again and it doesn't. And I, that's the only thing that sort of lets it down a little bit for me is I'm like, I'm waiting for it to do it again because I like that bit and I want, it, I want to hear it one more time. Um, but again, like I said, it's literally just a stylistic, a stylistic thing. I think that's part of what I like about it because to me that's quite unique and interesting. Because mm. it's on first a listen, this song was unpredictable because you didn't yeah. you didn't know where it was going. And I think that's what even twenty two years later, I think that's part of its intrigue to me. Because mm. it, it doesn't just do like it's not just a straight like glammy punky song. It's it's got more going on. Yeah, no, I would, I would, I would agree, and I would say that um, the fact that it doesn't restart probably does have um, meaning to it because it's the Manics and everything does. Uh, rating? What would you give it out of five? I'd give it a solid four. Snap, definitely four for me. Yeah, I love it. It, it. I think it's one of my favourite B sides, definitely. I was really shocked when it wasn't on Lipstick Traces and. In a in a bad way, I was I was quite annoyed <laughs> because, like I said, I, it wasn't even me that bought the single. I'm going to be really honest; it was my sister that bought Tsunami and played it to death, and then was like, "Oh my god, have you heard this B side?" And we listened to it together a lot, and then we would stick the CD in to our very old uh, computer and watch the video for Design for Life. I don't know why I said it like a ninety-year-old. <laughs> You said that like a gram. Oh, these children with their computers. Um, but yeah, you know, th there's a lot connected to this that is about me becoming a Manix fan. Um, me, when my sister was still living at home. it's it, It's got sentimental value to me as much as musical value. So I really have got a soft spot for it. Excellent. Um, I put this to Twitter. Oh, the, the Twitter machine. <laughs> Everyone on Twitter is right, remember? Of course. It's only been up a day, this this uh, poll, so there's four days left. Uh, five stars, get, it's quite surprising, five stars gave it 35%. Oh. Four stars, 33 Three stars, 24%. And two stars, 8%. So I'd say it's one of the popular ones. Now it's time for my interview with Mark Burrows on his new book, Manic Street Preachers, album by album. 
just to clarify this was recorded two or three weeks ago and the book is now commercially available everywhere I will put a link in the show notes for you to purchase it here is my interview with Mark Burrows I tried to kill myself a few times over the years. Uh, there was a time I tried to down an entire bottle of Jack Daniels and five packets of paracetamol. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't work. I'm not cool enough to down a bottle of Jack Daniels. I threw the whole thing straight back up, <laughs> which is awful. Gave me a massive headache, which is horrible, because I've just thrown up all of the paracetamol. So <laughs> uh, I tried to drop a toaster in the bath. I'm not sure if you're aware, but you cannot plug a toaster in in a British bathroom. <laughs> You can in America, land of the free. <laughs> you might be thinking, well, Mark, maybe you could have used an extension lead. You're right, I could have used an extension lead. My extension lead, though, was plugged into my computer, and my computer was downloading Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> tried to throw myself in front of a train. When that didn't work, I tried to throw myself in front of a replacement bus service. <laughs> you missed. You also delve into stand-up comedy and you have betrayed the image of Manix fans by having a sense of humour. You can't have a sense of humour as a Manix fan. It's just not, it's not allowed. No, it is, it is, yeah, it, it does kind of get you kicked out of the club sometimes. <laughs> um, like, I, I, I try to be weepy. <laughs> to t- tell a good joke and then go to the corner of the stage and cry. Yeah, basically. You know, I, 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 I try to just sit there looking mournfully at a, a, a picture of Bridget Edwards taken in 1993. But um, no, no, the thing is, I think that's, I, I don't think that's even true. And I, I think that was that was true for a small portion of the internet in 1996, <laughs> who couldn't go over the fact that they'd missed out on 1994. Uh, that that's um, yeah, that's pretty much where I where <laughs> where that comes from. The thing is, that Nicky Wire is really fucking funny. He which, is, yeah. So it's like I don't like there is wit in the in the Manic Street Preachers, like, like particularly if, uh, if you look at their early stuff, like they were they were pissing themselves at how over the top they are. <laughs> it's self consciously silly. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. The, the the like Generation Terrorist is a self consciously silly cod rock album. Mm. Like it's the, the the sense of humor is built into the band. So just because there's also you know, despair and the Holocaust doesn't and um, doesn't mean you can't also have a right old laugh. Yeah, still I've got still I've got to stop smiling and go to the wrong impression. <laughs> I think even like throughout their career, like sex, power, love, and money, and things like that, they're just ludicrous, yeah, exactly. isn't they? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, there are actually a lot of funny Manics fans. David Quantic is a is a massive yes. Manics fan. Yes. Uh, you know, it's like. Um, like, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I think that's a, I, I think it's a myth. Well, actually, your book's released now. Yes and no. The book is sort of out and sort of not out. Uh, technically, it's out now, but there was a um, delay at the printers. Oh. So the book, as far as I'm aware, doesn't actually exist uh, in in a physical form yet. So, okay. uh, like, I, I don't have any copies. What's really frustrating is I sold a load myself, um, like, uh, through my website that, it were like, like a special edition because I like doing that sort of thing when I, when I write a book. Uh, and I thought that that would be all fine. And what's happened is the books haven't come out yet. Uh, they were meant to be out last week. And now I have gone to the Orkney Islands. I <laughs> 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 can't send the books out until I get back home next week. Uh, so anyone who for me has to wait an extra week and a half. 
Okay, that's fair enough. Um, what so is... technically, technically, the book isn't out. It's it's, it's kind of in a it's in a kind of Schrodinger's book state of out. <laughs> um, what is your experience with the Manics? How did you first become a fan? So I discovered the Manics as many many people did through their interviews um, in you know the pre-internet era. Um, in the pre-internet era, I, I uh, before <laughs> I was able to get online, I got all of my my music knowledge from the music press, which you'll remember was in the form of weekly newspapers uh, in the mid nineteen nineties. Uh, yeah, uh, so I remember reading interviews around the release of the Holy Bible in Kerrang and in Enemy and Melody Maker, uh, which I sort of bought on a sort of rotating basis, depending on what mood I was in that week. Uh, and Raw as well. There was a fortnightly one called Raw R A W, which dropped out of history now. And it was like a metal magazine, and um, the mags were in that a lot as well. I, yeah, I, re- I discovered them through reading interviews before I heard them. Didn't, hadn't heard no, just read brilliant, brilliant interviews. And then uh, a friend of mine at school was a massive fan and did me a tape of Gold Against the Soul. So the first Manix I properly heard was belting on Sleep Flower really loud, which means I'm one of those tragic um, examples of a Manix fan that loves Sleep Flower. <laughs> I, everyone loves Sleep Flower except yeah. the fucking Manics. Uh, but yeah, so a like, special place in my heart for that record. And then, you know, Lachish Dessa, and I was like, oh, I know this one. I actually do know Lachish Dessa. And then later on, I, I, and then I got the Holy Bible, got completely obsessed with the Holy Bible, backtracking from interviews with Richie, and kind of fell in love with the whole, the, you know, the mythology. Of, I, was, I was 13 years old. I was, like, ripe for the plucking for a, for a mythology band like the Manics. Um, I've always been a sucker for mythology bands like I love Nirvana, I love Suede and Bowie and you know, The Cure and The Smiths and all that kind of thing. So the Manics were like there was so much to buy into, as you know. Like, um, it's, it's the classic Manics fan story. Uh, so when they went overground a year and a half later, I was like primed to pounce. And yeah, it turned out that I already knew Lachis Estera and Motorcycle Emptiness. I'd like they, they'd sort of hard coded into my head over the radio over the years. I just hadn't made the connection. Yeah. So that kind of makes sense, really, for a writer to essentially fall in love with their words through interviews first, because mm. because it that encompasses more than just like their tunes. It, it is that's what grabbed you first. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's that quote from Richie in the very early days where he just says very very quietly, "We just want to be, we just want to look brilliant and say brilliant things," and it's like, and they do, they did, and I it's. The problem with this, right, is this is the most cliched thing to say about how I discovered the Manics group readers because it's most Manics fans journey into the Manics. You know, it's you read about, you read. I mean, a little bit later, you got to hear them first, but, but yeah, I got I fell in love with their words, and I I wrote about this actually in the introduction to my book to say that there is a symbiotic relationship between writing and the Manics group readers. You know, everyone who fell in love with them in the same period as I am. Like, there's so many people who write about music professionally now, or semi-professionally, because it's very difficult to actually do. That's a full-time job in, in 2021. Almost nobody does. But uh, so many people who do are really big Manchester Preachers fans. Like, a disproportionate amount. They get far more press, really, than a band of their kind of level in terms of sales and ticket sales and all that sort of thing. Um, they punch above their weight in the press, because so many Manix fans became music journalists and journalists in general and writers in general. Um, now, yeah, I make this point in the, in the 
the introduction to the book is that you know you go and look back and look at other bands who sold as much as they did in their heyday uh, like look at a band like Ocean Colour Scene or something and mo- mostly sold sold as much as everything was going mm. but um, no one is writing books about Ocean Colour Scene uh, they're still around they're still touring but no one's writing but you know or, or the Stereophonics were a much bigger band than the Manics in the end you know, they, they were yeah, the Manics were a stadium band for you know like a week in 2000 but the but Stereophonics were a stadium band for like 15 years and no one's you know no one you can't they, they can't get press for their new records because no one cares they, they don't have that same relationship they were just they were just a band and the Manics had never been just a band uh, and it's like it's so frustratingly cliche but Nicky says that thing he said I interviewed him years ago and um, uh, around the time Futurology came out and I've since heard this quote loads of times but I think it was in my interview was the first time he said it but he may not have done but you know he prepares quotes in advance and deploys them so you know I'm not going to take credit for it but he said you know, you know we've inspired more people to write dissertations on R.S. Thomas than we have people to form bands which I don't think actually is true I think the man is actually really influential to, to, to bands but you know there's writing is writing and writing about music the Manics and also the Manics were in love with with music journalism they started being in love with music journalism mm. they bought into the mythology of those bands they bought into the mythology of, of the Clash and the mythology of the Smiths and they and the mythology of Guns N' Roses even like, like they realised that there was a mythology and image that was built up around those bands they fell in love with those with that so when they became famous, they regurgitated that same image. They projected it back to the music press. That's the, they absorbed it and then project and then regurgitated it. And then we're now we're absorbing it and we're regurgitating it. And it becomes this cyclical thing. I like more than any other band I can think of. There was a symbiotic relationship between the Manics and and writers and journalists. And, and I, I I loved that about them. Yeah. So I like, mean, which is why there are so many books written about them. Yes. <laughs> Well, that, that's it. I've, before we get onto the book in, in more detail, I've never what you just said has never occurred to me in the sense that there were bands around in like obviously the nineties and noughties that, that were the same size or bigger than them, but they don't get that. Maybe mythology is part of the word, but also praise, I suppose, and books and you know and all all that that's come with it. But I guess I'm thinking of that because I'm I'm so close to the bands as a fan for 25 years that it's difficult to see that out of context like you say Ocean Colour Scene even even Suede who were you know around Suede were a, Suede were a mythology band and still yeah. are a mythology band and they still do numbers you know they still they still tour and they're an amazing live band but they don't do the same numbers as the Manics. yeah yeah I've never it's never occurred to me in that way before um so what prompted you to edit a Manix book? Uh, because I didn't have time to write one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'd always like, so I'd always wanted to write books about music. I've been a music journalist semi-professionally for about 10 years. Um, and I've been writing about music for 25 years. Like, probably 20 years, like, consistently. Um, the special edition of the book that you can get from my website, markborrows.co.uk, <laughs> uh, comes with a fanzine the fanzine is um, is a collection of all my writing about the band over from it starts off with the Millennium Stadium gig in the year 2000 
um, starts off with the review I wrote at the time for my student union magazine, and it goes up to the review I wrote for Land and War of um, Resistance is Futile. Um, so I've always written loads about the Manics. I've always loved writing about them because of that symbiotic relationship. Um, and I've always wanted to write books, so it was kind of inevitable. So, um, but I ended up writing this book a couple of years ago about Terry Pratchett, mm. about the, the fantasy author Terry Pratchett. Uh, there's very little crossover with the Manics Free Preachers there, so don't look for it. Um, I mean, you could probably scratch around a little bit and, find, and force a connection, but not really, not really you know, the same thing apart from having really obsessive fans and work you, you can decode. Um, but so I, I wrote this book about Terry Pratchett for this relatively small publisher called Pen and Sword, and it, it did pretty well. It won an award, people really liked it, and they, then Pen and Sword, who mostly published history books and um, kind of cultural biographies, came back to me basically went, What do you want to write about next? And I had loads and loads of ideas, and I thought I want to get more stuff out, like than I could <laughs> realistically do. So I had this idea. I pitched to them a series called Album by Album, a series of books mm-hmm. where you, you write about a beloved band through their records. You do it, what take one album at a time. And I thought because I was, I'd, I'd also pitched this book about David Bowie and Mark Bowen. They really liked. I knew that was going to be too much work to do two books, to write two books at once, even though I know I bash the manics one out relatively easy. The Bowie one's going to need a lot more research. Um, so I thought it would be really interesting to find different writers to represent each album. And I thought, it'll be, you know, it won't be very much work for me then. Or, you know, I'll, I'll put it together, I'll find the writers, I'll edit you know, I'll, I'll literally edit the work. I'll, I'll put the the hours in and doing the editing work, um, and assemble it. And then you know, I'll, I'll write the introduction and I'll write a chapter, and then that'll be it. And I thought that'll be nice and easy. And then I can get a book out. That means that book can come out as a stopgap. Uh, I mean, my my Pratchett book came out in twenty twenty in twenty nineteen. The no twenty twenty. The Manics book comes out in twenty twenty. One of the Bowie books out in twenty twenty two. I thought, oh, that's great. I can have three in a row. Um, what happened was. Um, like, well, first of all, I got I, I got all my writers. I found this really diverse bunch of writers, allocated all the albums. I was really happy. Then the person who was meant to write about this is my true time, yours dropped out at the last minute, and I thought, okay, well that's fine. I can write about this is my true time, yours. I love that album. It's one of my favourite records. No problem there. I'll write about that. I was also going to do rewind the film, which is now my love, but it was the one I was kind of left with because mm. <laughs> no one. I basically. Ate got people to pitch which albums they wanted and what their takes on those albums were so that then I could just kind of make sure we got a good a good range of different styles I wanted some of it to be like proper music criticism like proper cultural evaluation I wanted some of it to be really personal um, and some of it to be kind of about social context so I wanted a mix of different people writing about different things in different styles so I got everyone to pitch me three or four different ideas and then I put the book together based on that so that left and I got left with Rewind the Film which is fine I can write I could write about Rewind the Film but um, and then I ended up doing This Is My Truth Tell Me Yours and I realised that everything I wanted to write about This Is My Truth Tell Me Yours also applied to Rewind the Film pretty much and I thought I'm basically going to be writing the same article twice so I decided to do something else so I ended up writing a short story for Rewind the Film I kind of worked out what the themes were and wrote a piece of fiction so there's a short story for that chapter which I'm really nervous about <laughs> I've got no idea how people will respond to that. Um, so already the, my workload had, had increased. And then I thought, well, this book 
it's fine to have the story told through the albums, but it needs a bit of context just so people can find this bit. This find, can know for people who aren't hugely familiar with the band will be able to see how where the album sits in the in the, the mm. story. So I thought I'll do a brief timeline to tie everything together. So you know, 1985 the band formed, 1990 they signed to Heavenly, blah 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 blah. Um, so I started doing that, um, and the problem is I know how to be a biographer now and I know how to do research and I started going into ludicrous detail with this timeline <laughs> and I, I realised after a, a couple of weeks of writing it though I was basically writing a full biography in bullet points so, <laughs> so actually um, so I, I was like oh, well, I guess we're in now so the timeline is this absurdly detailed like week by week, what happened to the Mannix um, from between 1985 and and 2021, and uh, so I essentially did write a whole book about the Mannix. So I feel a bit better about having my name on the front now because um, I put an absurd amount of work into it. Um, there was one point where I was doing the doing the paperback edits and promotion for my Terry Pratchett biography at the same time that I was doing the final editing and polishing for the Mannix book and was trying to get into the research for the David Bowie Mark Boland book and it was getting very schizophrenic in my head um, well that's ableist language, apologies <laughs> but very kind of split off in my head yeah. um, and uh, but that's, that's where we are so that's, that's how the book came to be but but even if you have like covered the bit of the history, I think that's a, a thing a fan would do anyway because they because of the interest you have in them. But if it's in done, yeah, exactly. the manic story has been told before in book, like you say. But I guess if it's done in more bullet point, more digestible form, it, it like you say, it does make a good way to lead to the album. So it gives context to where the the band are at that certain time. But also, um, it's the full story which hasn't been done before. I mean, that's true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The linear nature of time. You know, Pricey's book ends in 1998. Um, there's another book that goes up to Lifeblood, I think. Um, uh, there's, you know, there's various different sources. Um, and I re so I realised actually there'd not been that level of attention paid to the second half of the band's career. And secondly, those sources disagree a lot. Um, like, uh, yeah. there is a genuine. There are bits where, because in order to put this timeline together, I was like, okay, so I've got, I've got. Um, Simon Price's biography, everything, the one everyone everyone has. Uh, you know, I've got there was one by Paula Shukova, um, there was one by somebody called Martin something, I can't remember his name. Um, and then I had loads of press, and like you know, um, like every single article that basically had been written about them is is around somewhere. So I was able to go through each of these sources and then cross reference them against each other. And then you start to realise, oh, actually, this says this thing happens on that day, but this says it happens on that day. And then you have to go down a kind of a, a like a, a wormhole of trying to find, you know, the tr tr seeing if anyone has uploaded the original tour poster anywhere, so you can confirm which date it happened on. Um, there's a really interesting one in um, uh, where we get to the first gig without Richie, hmm. which was. Um, at Wembley Arena supporting the Stone Roses and um, Simon Price's book talks about how the band went on stage and uh, and no one paid any attention to them 
and the, you know, there was a hardcore of Manix fans and they were all really into it and then everybody else was just um, was you know indifferent talking amongst themselves um, but then Martin Powers book now to history talks about the same event and talks about there being a massive outpouring of love from the whole audience like a standing ovation everyone was like so pleased to see them so on their side this massive huge outpouring of energy and in Simon's version um, Nicky Wire comes out and sarcastically says what's the matter it's only us and in Martin Powers version Nicky Wire comes out and goes what's the matter it's only us and you know the, the, the intonation is completely different so I was like oh did they die on their ass at that gig or did everybody love them I don't know so you start going back through the reviews Paul Morley wrote a review um, Everett True wrote a really amazing review and you try and find people who were there. And so you're just trying to get the different perspectives and try and work out what the actual story was. Um, of course, it's because memory is fallible and art is subjective. It's really difficult to do that. But um, I found that really fascinating and really, really interesting. So, yeah, um, it became... It was a really fun process to do. And then, of course, you get to the, the Richie stuff. And then you, you find yourself turning into a true crime documentary. Like, you know, if I was making up that chapter bit of the book as a as a Netflix documentary like you know there'd, there'd be interviews with talking heads sat in bleak landscapes yeah. filmed in widescreen and like gorgeous drone shots over South Wales and um, there'd be no narrative <laughs> it'd be it'd all like that and, and sort of depressing violin music uh, but you know it, it became a different kind of journalism and a different kind of storytelling so actually that was I found the whole process really fun and the other thing with the, the timeline is the timelines are boring. So I really didn't want it to be boring. So I actually I, I actually think I tell the story quite well in the bullet point format. And I quite enjoyed that. I quite enjoyed burying jokes in it and, and callbacks and kind of asides and you know, putting in little bits of personality that kind of made it more than it is more than just a list of events a list of dates so I, I hope I've done a good job with that I know it was certainly the most fun bit to do but yeah the, the, the whole thing became like a massive project <laughs> but like you say um in terms of historical context things like concerts or interviews and things like that memory is isn't a good n narrator is it but in terms of what I like about the reasoning behind getting different writers to to uh, write about different albums is the fact that they it, it, it's openly they are offering their personal experience and their personal thoughts on that album, as we all do. As you know, there's God knows how many Manix fans out there. We'll all have certain takes of certain songs or certain you know esteem in which we hold those albums, and I think that's that writing a book or putting out a book is that is openly just saying here's a person that loves that album and this is that person's take on it I think that's quite a refreshing thing rather than one author all the way through saying their opinions yeah. on all of the albums I agree and I, I, as much as my ego would like to say I wish I'd written that whole book myself I think it's a better book because I didn't I actually think it's going to be a much more interesting book for someone to read because you've got these different interpretations like Mayor Nissen who wrote about Send Away the Tigers I, I've never really loved that record. It's got some mm -hmm. bits on it I like. Um, you know, the, the singles are very strong, but I, you know, it's never been a Manix album I return to. It's, it's the Manix. I still really like the record, but it's 
like you know in the pantheon of manic records it's not it's you know it's it's, it's um bottom end for me bottom half it's the bottom half of the table um but mayor is brilliant like enthusiastic celebration of it um and it actually really made me really reevaluate it, it made me think i don't think that i'd i'd kind of been sleeping on that record a bit on its um particularly on it on, on its lyrical themes on on the stuff that Nikki's talking about on the record yeah. um, and I was really pleased about that because it's it's not a perspective on that album I could ever have had yeah and that's and, that, and that's and something that, that that person's seen into where you haven't and that's that's it's so much along the lines especially with a band like the Manics which has so much depth to their lyrics or nuance there's going to be so so many different opinions across the board exactly and um and i didn't just want opinions i wanted tone as well i wanted the tone to be really different so like you do have you've got like um so yeah may is may uh on send away the tigers me on this is my dream to tell me yours uh andre Lukowski on um know your enemy claire biddles on futurology these are really they're really kind of um uh they're really kind of journalistic sort of proper music journalism deep dives you know they're about the songs they're about the music they're about uh, Adam Glasspool's on, on um, Lifeblood as well you know they're about the songs they're about the music they're about the producer they're about the, the kind of the reaction of the charts and and you know they're music journalism but there's other pieces in there um, Emma O'Brien who wrote about um, who wrote about the Holy Bible for example um, was it like was in psychiatric care um, recovering from an eating disorder when she was writing, but when she when she got into the Holy Bible, and so her take, but it was was later. It was like it was a few years after the, after the album came out. So her take on that record is completely different, mm. and she's not talking about you know the 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 compressed drum tones and <laughs> the, the the claustrophobic nature of the studio or the influence of post punk and um, uh, or Richie's use of um, Rich's use of, of right-wing manifestos in the themes and all that, and all that stuff is how I would have approached that record. She didn't do it, do that at all. She approached it entirely emotionally, and it's, uh, what you get is a completely different kind of album, kind of thing. Um, Laura Kelly, who wrote about uh, who wrote about God Against the Soul, I love her piece because it's about growing up in Northern Ireland. It's not. It's. It is about the manics. Mm. It is about. It's about. It's about the album. It is about feminism. Actually, she writes about how Gold Against the Soul is the most feminist manics album. Um, and but it's also, it's also a you know three thousand word essay about growing up in Northern Ireland in the nineties, and that's you know again I'd never have written that. I'd have written it in a completely different way. Totally so much more. Um, probably much less interesting. Much more. I, I'd, I'd be talking about again big drum stuff big drum sounds and and the whistle guy on the end of uh, Roses in the Hospital and um, the baggy influences on La Tristesse de Era and all that sort of thing so yeah I, that's what I loved about it yeah is that you get these different tones and different angles and some of it is very is you know um, Rianne Jones who writes about Generation Terrorist has but it's quite academic and then um, Erica Biola who wrote about General Plague Lovers writing about being a Mannix fan in America and it's a completely different experience and it's much more personal that's why that's why I, I think the book works so it's that balance between personal and, and, and political not literally political but you know like you say music journalists are going to be much more thorough on 
the technical aspects, but, yeah. but the fans hate, speak from the heart. I hate to say it, because it, I, would, I didn't think this would happen, uh, is it does kind of adhere to cliches in that the, the, rock ha- the male rock hacks who were written for this, myself included, have mm. gone down that very spotty, very, very you know, music, ner- music nerdy route of almost reviewing the album. Um, whereas, by and large, the women who've written have either written much more sumptuous and kind of emotionally engaging takes, and or in the case like Rianne's piece or um, um, or Laura Williams' piece on um, Resistance is Futile, is they're, they're social, they're, they're social commentary. They're not so much about the, the musical content of the album. They're about what it says about the world when it came out um, that's which I think is fascinating and it's really interesting to, to see that, that there was a gender split um, and even more interesting when you read Felix Andrews on uh, Everything Was Go who is non-binary and their piece kind of has a foot in both camps mm. and it kind of I, like, I didn't it's it's almost annoying how that how that happened because uh, and I think that you can always write an essay about that and what um, and what gendered approach that approaches to manic fan- fandom says about um, the patri the, the patriarchal lineage of music writing um, and patriarchal lineage of music writing. But if so, you yeah, if, to get into. yeah, if you decided at the start of of the process i'm going to write about my favorite album and you'd you'd written about your you'd you'd written about your favorite album would you have gone for the personal aspects or would would you like you say you'd have gone for the rock hack kind of take Uh, it would have been somewhere between the two um because i think to an extent i I think i would i i the thing is i am a rock hack That's what I do. I am. I have been reviewing music since the late nineties. Um, uh, it's. It's. So that kind of writing, that texture, is kind of ingrained in me. Um, I think I'm. I'm also, you know, a sociology graduate. So I, 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 there inevitably was. I mean, if you read my piece, and this is my truth, tell me yours, which actually I, is probably the album I would have chosen to write oh, really? about. Because um, I. I like I don't think it's the Manic's best album, but I think it's my favourite Manic album. Um, but it's uh, and those two things are very important to dis- dis- distinguish, aren't they? Because yes, they're they very are. often the different things. Yeah, they are, uh, and I, I can I can I'll go on at length about which I, I think I, I like, which I think are the best Manic records. But that one holds, you know, because of the, because of its tone and because of what was happening in my life when it came out. So um, yeah, I think I would have done what I did with that. My my uh, my essay on that article, which is one of the longest ones in the book, but you know, um, if you can't break your own rules, <laughs> is it doesn't it isn't personal. I don't kind of go into what's happening in my life, no. but it is uh, it is sociological and it is and it is kind of muso critical. So I think that's that's always going to be my inclination. I think if I'd written the whole book. There would have been some autobiography in there, but um, that probably would have been a bit indulgent from just what just me. Uh, who am I? Who wants to read about my life? Like, <laughs> um, so 
so it's probably for the best that I didn't. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I would have I would have gone down the road that I ultimately did when I did that. But I love the what? fact that the the in your the special edition of the fanzine. I think that's only available from uh, uh, the book. That's only available from your website. That you've yeah. done a bonus fanzine that you mentioned earlier. But was that basically set out like a tribute to all the fanzines to the band back in the day? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, partly it was leaning into the limitations because I wanted to do bonus content. It's nice to do that sort of thing. Yeah. When you, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with a small publisher. They're not interested in doing that sort of thing. So you know, I can buy some stock off the publisher, and then I can put my own packages together, which is what I've done. Um, and uh, so yeah, um, it seemed obvious that you know I got this stuff are hanging around. I've got this content hanging around. Um, I, you know, uh, some of it hasn't hasn't been read and was barely read by anybody when it was when it was written. Others, you know, it's been left to wither on some music website somewhere. Um, and so I just thought it would be a relatively easy thing to do to, to print it as a book. So no. um, like I could have written it as a, a kind of as a paperback um, and got it what's called perfect bound, which is where you have spine and writing on the spine um, rather than what's called saddle stitch which is like your classic fanzine magazine style um, but I couldn't afford to do a book, to produce it as a book so I could only really afford to produce it as a booklet and I thought well if it's going to be a booklet if it's going to be magazine style you know let's lean in it's, this is essentially fan writing um, albeit some of it was professionally about well 50 I'd say two thirds of it has been professionally published before um the Guardian, Drowning Sound, The Quietus, Larry and War. Uh, but I thought, you know, what that, I thought I'll lean into the limitations. The, lim- I, I, the, the format suggests, so I, 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 and that made it more fun to design because it meant when I actually designed it myself, and it meant that I could, uh, you know, I, I was looking for the, exactly the right typewriter font and um, like spacing the, exactly the right spacing of the lettering and, you know, putting in deliberate typos and bits where I'd made it look like it had been tipex down and <laughs> I I photoshopped all the pictures so that they looked like they'd been printed on an old printer and scanned in um, you know there was all that sort of you know, loads of tricks like that and I made the cover look like a collage of, of cut up stuff of old you know my per- it was, it's got my old ticket stubs on the cover and my copy of the program from the Millennium gig and um, a picture of me when I was 18 pretending on the keyboard, basically. And it's, you know, I, it was really fun to put it together. So, yeah, the reason it's a fanzine is partly because it is a fanzine. It's, it's a book of fan writing. Um, and, and partly it's because um, if I tried to make it look more professional, it would never look that professional because it was always going to be printed like that. Yeah. So um, may as well lean in. So we have fan forums everywhere for artists online now. All of it, obviously, because it's just on the screen, it's just in blocks, it all looks the same, it all looks generic. Do you miss that era of fanzines? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, you know what? I was late to fanzines because growing up in suburban, not suburban, growing up in rural Leicestershire, where I was from, it kind of never occurred to me. Like, I didn't know that they were a thing. I just didn't know. I just, you know, I'd, re- I'd read interviews in the music press. I knew the music press was a thing. I knew that, that the evening session and John Peel were a thing, uh, you know. But I, I didn't know about fanzines, and no one was selling them in, in rural Leicestershire. No one 
like fan mail. If I'd known about fanzines, I would have written one. I, I like un, I would have obsessively written like the my Manix fanzine would have come out. But um, weirdly, I wasn't part of that of that culture. Um, uh, later, I discovered zines and kind of and but it was by then it was too late because most of the best ones had stopped. And it stopped being published, and things had kind of moved on to fan sites. And most fan sites were not good. Um, you know, if you go back to the early 2000s, late 90s, the era of the fan site before kind of Facebook and MySpace, MySpace first, and then Facebook kind of removed the necessity of uh, fan sites because the communities could all be focused in one place. Um, and they were, you know, they're always like the background would be um, a picture of. Richie that was like tiled <laughs> across um, t- that was tiled and like, the font would be awful and it'd be like bright green and you couldn't read it read it against the tiled image that was behind it and so I was more but I read a lot more of those pages than I did paper fanzines and then I got I then I discovered fanzines but by then they were more of a specialist thing they were being more professionally produced and um, you know the, the, the kind of the zine culture we have now is a very different kind of culture so that one of the 90s, which was a desperate culture. It was like, this is, we have no other way of producing them, so we're doing it ourselves. It annoys me to this day that, it, that this isn't something that occurred to me or that I heard about. <laughs> so, mm. um, I, I wish I had. I wish I could have been the kind of person who was corresponding with, like, corresponding with goth girls in the Netherlands um, because I'd found a letter by them in the back of a Manix fanzine. Well, well, I guess like that's it. That the interaction that came from fans was was with letters, wasn't it? And now, the forums or, or fan sites which are basically replaced it. It's that's much more immediate interaction, which can be a good thing, but also yeah. it, it pays way for bullying or like nasty comments or something. Whereas yeah. whereas whereas the fanzine thing is much more of a a placid thing you, you're buying something yeah. like you're reading it like a magazine there's no there's no i'm going to post something in here and someone's going to reply you're a dickhead to me it, it's I mean, I'm, I'm still quite fond of that of that mid-period where of the of the awful fan writing website because the, there was still a kind of fanzine element because they didn't tend to have message boards mm. then like they, they have what occasionally you have what used to be called a bulletin board or you get a news a news um a news email or a news group um, but it was never that much but I actually met Manix fans on those kind of websites that I had letter writing relationships with you know the, the classic Manix fan, Manix fan thing of you know, writing it writing it on writing a letter to some girl who lived in Bath who I'd met on a Richie Edwards themed depression based website <laughs> and writing her a letter uh, on black paper and silver pen that I with a with a, a, then drawing a hammer and sickle with print stick on the envelope and pouring glitter over it, like, you know, all of that really painfully manic, manic fan things. We've all been there. Did all, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still did all that. Um, I just missed out on the paper fanzine bit of it. <laughs> all right, brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Mark. I really appreciate that. I really enjoyed that. Before we go, I generally let guests like choose again. It said what we were talking about earlier. Either a favourite song of the Mannix or maybe something that means most to you and we'll play that out uh, can I have Forever Delayed please ah which I think is a bit of both 
I think I, I think Forever Delayed is an amazing song. Um, I know I know it's the one they always say they that should have been a single, um, but it, I, I just think it's an incredible piece and it's so atmospheric. And so um, like, and, but also has it's got such an emotional punch to it. Uh, um, there's the bit it's the bit where it kind of quite there's a double chorus with an extra line in it towards yeah. the end where James sings forever ever betrayed and it's just like oh goosebumps it's one of those ones that's become a fan favourite hasn't it yeah very much so but, um, it's, one, but it's, a rare, it's a rare occasion where it's a fan favourite that the band agree about yeah well you all can follow me to a place where That's it for episode 15. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook as Manic Street Speakers, on Twitter as ManicsPod, and contact us on Gmail at ManicsPod at gmail.com. Feel free to review us on Apple Podcasts, but if you leave a bad one, why don't you just fuck off? <laughs> if you if you leave a bad review, you make Nikki cry. Exactly. And nobody wants that, do they? Nobody wants to see the wire cry. Until next time. We love you one time, we love you two times, we love you three fucking times. Get pissed, destroy. I just, I just want to say, and you can edit this somewhere and put it in, I am very much looking forward to reading Mark Burroughs' excellent book and writing a review on my blog, which will be up as soon as I've finished the ball ache of a project I'm currently working on. If you can get it somewhere in the outro. Okay. Oh, I, I was literally just going to leave it there and you were going to, I was just going to say, stick it where you want. <laughs> oh.